Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Are you enjoying this podcast? Well, consider supporting it. One of the best ways to do that is to sign up as a patron over at our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash indefensibleplants. There's a bunch of kickbacks for supporting the show. It doesn't take much, and I couldn't be doing it without my patrons. So once again, that's patreon.com slash indefensibleplants. I have a real treat for you today because we are talking about what happens to plants, specifically trees, when it rains. And I'm not talking about, oh, they drink water. I'm talking about how do they interact with the water? Where does the water go? How long does it stick around? And how is it influencing everything from ecosystem processes all the way up to human societies? Fun fact, it can save us a lot of money in the long run. But there's so much more to it than that. And joining us to talk about this is Dr. John Van Stan. And when I say he is super passionate about this subject, I'm only scratching the surface. He has such interesting insights into the world of wet plants, and he and his colleagues are doing really important work to help us understand these processes so much better. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. John Van Stan. I hope you enjoy. Right, Dr. John Van Stan, welcome to the podcast. It is so exciting to have you here. I'm really pumped to pick your brain, but first, let's start off with an introduction. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. So I'm a, I'm a professor at Cleveland State University, and I run a lab I call the Wet Plant Lab. Uh, I noticed when I was doing my PhD that not many people went out into the field to collect data on plants when it was raining or snowing (laughs) or during other forms of inclement weather. And so I thought, you know, maybe I can carve out a niche for myself by looking at what plants do when they're wet, because we have many assumptions about what they don't do. (laughs) (laughs) And if I could even uh, start to uncover a few things, then, uh, then it would really start to set things off for me. And so I started at uh, the University of Delaware, and I finished my PhD there. Then I went to Georgia Southern University, where I was running a lab. It was called the Applied Coastal Research Lab. And uh, my work down there caught the attention of Cleveland State University, and they offered me a job to come up here. And uh, I've been aching for the snow again, so I was happy to accept. (laughs) Nice. I'm glad you were able to get that back in your life. But, you know, was it always plants? I mean, where did this kind of start? Were you just kind of outside a lot and started to ask questions? Or were you really focused on plants throughout most of your life? Yeah, it didn't actually start with plants. Um, I was pretty into nature when I was a kid. I was always outside and I was always hiking. I liked hiking and doing backpacking and just generally spending time with the environment. I was particularly interested in water. And so I started my uh, academic journey looking at hydrology and in particular eco-hydrology. So how water interacts with ecosystems and that field tends to heavily focus on plants. Um, And so I started looking at plants from that perspective, Mm. almost as uh, really a lot of people who go into eco-hydrology begin looking at how plants suck up water from different pathways. (laughs) And I wanted to look at how plants got bathed by water. So I also had a bit of an external focus compared to what was typical for ecohydrology. And as I discovered, I could uh, play out in the woods when no one else was there <laughs> and still get paid for it. 
my passion for the intersection between water, plants, and uh, inclement weather grew. Nice. That's a really cool sort of pathway, I guess, if you could call it that. And it is this sort of interdisciplinary observation because oftentimes I run into people that are really into sort of the physics side of hydrology, how water moves through groundwater and stuff like that. And then the botanists, ecologists that are, what are these living things? We know they need water, but they're living. So let's just deal with that way. And then of course, climatology kind of combines those. But like I said, before we hit record your website, the way you described wet plants and why you study wet plants to me really just, it, it hit a different chord. And I really appreciate that about your work is just how different it is. And when we were kind of talking about how to frame our conversation, the the first thing that you hinted at, which you've already kind of mentioned here is that you fill the niche because most of us, if it starts raining while we're out in the field, we're hightailing it back to cover. But it sounds like y'all are like, <laughs> let's dive in. Let's. This is our prime time. Yes, indeed. And I think that is one of the uh, one of the odd things about my work is that um, when when it starts to rain or snow or something uh, that is somewhat related to dangerous weather starts to show, uh, most people would put sensors out. And then uh, use their sensory perception. Um, but since we're out there in the field, not just me, but also my students, we are wandering around actually experiencing nature during a time when most people don't really experience it. And as a result, we get interesting pictures, interesting videos, or even when we're like talking with uh, kids in classes or just, you know, rolling through the pages in Reddit, we end up finding a whole <laughs> bunch of bizarre. Uh, processes that are going on when plants are wet that either no one's imagined happens or has assumed doesn't happen. Hmm. Um, and it's become uh, a lot of, it's become a really create a really great avenue for creativity. Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy you focused on creativity because when I put myself in your shoes or the, the members of your lab shoes, the first thing my brain comes to is how the heck do you even begin to approach this? Because I love looking at plant structure, but it's pretty dynamic. I mean, you can find repeatable patterns, but trying to study how even a moss, let alone uh, something as complex as a tree in terms of size and structure, interacts with water moving through a 3D space, that has got to present you with so many challenges that you have no choice but to be hyper creative because it's not like there's a one size fit all strategy here, I'm assuming. Yes. Yeah, no, you're you're exactly right. And in fact, um, you you hint at a particular parameter in all of our water models that is really important for uh, civil engineering and uh, important for climate models as well. It is what we call water storage capacity or mm. canopy water storage capacity. And one would think it might be a little bit easy to estimate how much water is stored up there on those surfaces. But it's actually quite challenging because, as you mentioned, that heterogeneity, right, <laughs> that's up there is immense. And so we have to be creative in how we estimate that. One of the things that we did, which was really fun, uh, and this was an idea that was started by somebody at Oregon State named John Selker. But uh, I've been fortunate enough to be on a team uh, that has evolved over time to look at this sensor. But we take a little uh, potentiometer. It's just a rod in the box that has a voltage supplied to it. And so we apply a potentiometer to a tree stem and we extend it over a meter. And when it rains or snows on that tree, that little rod in the box starts to change as the compression of the stem occurs under the weight of that additional water. Huh. And so 
this was a creative solution to saying, okay, if we can figure out, uh, say, how much a tree compresses its stem under, say, 100 kilograms of water, right? Then we can, mm. we can calibrate it. Then we can estimate exactly how much water is stored up there. Well, of course, there's all types of... <laughs> now, maybe we've uh, found a creative way to get around trying to get all that heterogeneity in the canopy accounted for spatially. But temporarily, it then becomes another problem because wind will blow stuff around. Mm. Uh, all, all types of weird things happen as well. Even temperature as it freezes a tree start to change, <laughs> right? That, 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 that elasticity. So we get to play a lot with some creative things um, from these little rods and boxes to even putting accelerometers up there, like the stuff that tells your phone what orientation it has. Oh, wow. We can use that because we can... You know, one person said um, maybe the answer to water storage in trees is uh, just, what is it, floating in the wind? Because as the tree bends in the wind, we might be able to relate that uh, sway period, right, to the mm. amount of mass wow. that's up in the canopy, right? A heavier tree <laughs> should sway a little longer, you see? So yeah. we've been trying to do a lot of really um, um, simple measures that might allow us to look at this really complex thing and give us just because we need we need a number basically yeah right for, for the models and and to help us to um and it's not just for the models to help us to do things it's also for the models to help us to conserve trees and, and sure forests. wow fascinating and of course it's like you you start to scrape away at the surface and it just goes deeper and I'm always really amazed at sort of the interdisciplinary side of things because I'm guessing when you got into this, you're not thinking potentiometers or you had to learn how all of these things work. And then how is it realistic to even apply them to a scenario such as, you know, swaying in the wind or weight of a branch, that sort of thing. So I, I, I'd imagine every time you go and ask a question, you're like, I have a whole slew of new things I have to learn in the physics world and the <laughs> electronics world. I mean... Does it ever end? <laughs> no, you're exactly right. Yeah, it never ends. It's It's been a fascinating uh, journey because, yeah, I had never really worked with potentiometers or heard the word before. Uh, well, I had heard the word as like wind sensors, which sure. is circular potentiometers. So when someone told me we can use potentiometers to measure tree sway, I thought, what are you talking about? You know, the, the spinning of the tree. And so uh, <laughs> I had to recalibrate even what I thought a potentiometer was because I wasn't a mechanical engineer. Right. So I had to figure out, oh, that's a broad term that includes a multiple other forms of uh, controlling the amount of voltage that makes it through a system, huh. basically. And so uh, we've also made novel laser scanners because turns out hmm. the surface of the bark is important for some things that we were studying. So we had to make a LIDAR system that could spin around trees. Wow. That was fun. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> you must really get to talk and hang out with some fascinating folks on top of just the people in your lab. Like That's really cool to hear. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, we, we do because um, I always look at this um, wet plants as kind of a lens to broader topics. Um, there's a there's a great I, I love the um, total perspective vortex from Douglas Adams, <laughs> yeah. um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I don't know if that's like a super deep cut there. It's but, a good uh, one though, for what it's worth. <laughs> Do elaborate. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's that story of I think the scientist's name was Trintragula, and uh, he liked to look at really fine details of silly tiny things, you know, and. Um, 
his wife was nagging him about it and was like, you need to look, you need some perspective. This is too small. And I look at like wet plants as my kind of small thing that I can then um, in the total perspective vortex that Trintragula makes, he can extrapolate all the universe from this small thing. So I, I think a wet plant is fascinating because a wet plant has gas exchange things to consider. It has engineering problems. It also has uh, microbiomic elements to it that it can influence. So it is a uh, it is my total perspective vortex. <laughs> I love it. It's <laughs> such a good analogy. And yeah, perfect deep cut for our sci-fi fans out there. But yeah, I mean, this is a great point to kind of bring up. If we back up a little bit, there's a lot of reasons why beyond just being curious about it, wet plants are, are a really important thing to start looking at especially, you know, scaling up to just how we get around human society and, and the way we interact with the natural world and our often built world. Like there is so many applications to this work, isn't there? Oh, definitely. Yeah. And the most uh, direct one that I tend to get asked a lot about is stormwater management. Mm. Um, in fact, urban forestry and urban greening, the um, most city managers and uh, other government officials are convinced to uh, green and to maintain their urban forest by assigning a value, a number value to it, right? The eco-service values. And so you can get millions to hundreds of millions of dollars worth of eco-service value and stormwater reductions sure. due to that storage of water and the subsequent evaporation. So that's the one I, I end up uh, fielding the most questions about from, from the applied realm. Yeah. But uh, even, even like... Uh, the gas exchange, they assume when leaves are wet, all gas exchange stops in many models. Oh, and it's kind of silly if you think about it, because like the tops of leaves get wet and, you know, a lot of the gas exchanges occur can occur underneath. Yeah. So, <laughs> huh. <laughs> and it's, you know, during a time period where they're not water limited. So you'd think maybe it's almost increased in some scenarios. I mean, just shooting from the hip here, but... You know, there's very few studies on uh, the conductance of water or even carbon through leaves in uh, wet or even like uh, overcast conditions with diffuse radiation and so wow. on, like you would during or after a storm. And they show mixed results. Huh. Sometimes it's reduced. Sometimes it's increased. So it's one of those big open questions that may uh, break open some of our models uh, in, a, in a rather interesting direction once the... Uh, once a parsimonious explanation uh, yes. is achieved. An attempt at parsimony in the natural world, good luck, <laughs> right? <laughs> but this gets at another big point here is when we started corresponding, you know, I, outside of my small little world, just kind of assume, yeah, we've got a good foundation in most forms of it. But just our brief correspondence getting this set up showed me that so much of the assumptions are truly that assumptions made on fudge factors or, yeah, we'll just throw a constant in this model. So you kind of hinted at it. You, you found yourself a niche and looking at you, you, you don't look like you're retiring from a white ripe old multiple decade career of crushing it. So big horizons here. And if you're carving out a niche at this point in your career, it tells me there's probably a lot yet to be known. And we're operating under some heavy, heavy, heavy assumptions currently in this world. Yes. Well, thank you. And and yeah, I completely agree with you. We have a lot of assumptions that go on during uh, when we're trying to represent periods or represent understanding of periods where we haven't really made had much of a, a physical presence ourselves. And uh, one of these fudge factors is related to stormwater management, for example, mm. that's really difficult canopy water storage capacity we mentioned earlier. Um, 
what they do now is they do something like they just assume. I, I imagine I had this great meme for one of my talks where it was like <laughs> Michael Scott was sitting in the office and he had his like world's best um, world's best boss mug. Yeah, yeah. And I just replaced it with like modeler, you know, <laughs> and then it's computer in the background. It was like the, the community land surface model or something. And like and he was like, oh, I have to correct for the amount of rain that makes it to the ground underneath all my vegetation. And so he goes out into the bullpen and he asks everyone, hey, everyone, anyone have an idea? How much does a leaf hold? How much water could a leaf hold? And like somebody just goes, I don't know, 0.1 millimeters per leaf. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So he goes, brilliant. And that's and that's what we have right now. We have essentially 0.1 millimeters. Well, 2.2. It depends. There's a little a little wiggle room. Okay. <laughs> uh, times the leaf area index or times the meter squared of leaf area that is over a single meter squared of surface area. So uh, that's quite, I mean, so it's not quite a fudge factor. Uh, it is an, imagina- imagina- an imaginative way of trying to make a simple estimate. Sure. But it really makes a narrow range of water storage. And as a result, when you look at it in the field, it's kind of no surprise that we see a very, a much wider range than that and some pretty huge storage capacities. Yeah, I can imagine, you know, errors get amplified over certain models more than others, right? And so even small numbers can really throw things either too conservative or too liberal in some cases, mathematically speaking. Um, But, you know, when you're thinking about where to go from here, how much does species choice factor into what you're doing on a daily, weekly, monthly basis in your lab, first off? Yeah, yeah. So uh, what we what we've been trying to do, uh, we have some species based studies, but what we've been trying to do is look at like trait based analyses lately, Mm, because um, that way, hopefully we can find traits that can be applied across different species and um, help us to simplify things, to put things into models. In fact, that's one of the, the big in science today and a general point is that you can uncover some really fascinating concepts, but then uh, you're almost limited in how much of an impact you can have when you have that fascinating concept, Mm. unless you can express it in some way that a numerical reduction, a model, right, (laughs) right, can grab a hold of it and and turn it into some kind of estimate that can be um, either insightful for management or or useful. Um, So a lot of our trait-based stuff is now instead of so we use those laser scanners around trees to get bark mm-hmm. well now we're using a terrestrial laser scanner to scan mm. trees and then we can derive different canopy structural traits from there and there's a lot of interesting challenges arising from that too but uh we are primarily looking at species that represent a range of traits that okay. might influence strongly what we what we think Right. Will I have with wet plants? That speaks to me. I came from a trait-based ecology background. It's kind of a way of, of, of knowing things are different, but saying, okay, here are some generic you know, factors that make sense in this environment versus this environment. So what are important traits for your work? Like, Where do you begin on that side of things? And then I've got more questions that stem from there, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so um, what's important? <laughs> Yeah, so so the traits that are important for what we're looking at are are uh, hypothesized as important. Sure. Um, some of them, some of them, we have a difficult time even getting to. So I'll give you an example. Um, 
So some uh, a, a fraction, a meaningful fraction of rain, for example, that hits trees can drain down the stem and create a process we call stem flow. Okay. It's water that flows on the outside of the bark down to the surface. And even if it's only, say, 5% of rain, 5% of rain across a large canopy, say 50 meters squared, becomes many, many uh, dozens of liters of water at the surface, right? Concentrated mm. right at the base of the stem. So you can see lots and lots of water coming down from stem flow. So one of the traits we'd like to know is, well, what is the actual area capturing rain and draining it to the stem? Not every branch is doing it, oh, right? Okay. And so just the surface area of the actual stem flow generating system within the whole canopy is a great trait. But how do you get it? <laughs> right. right? <laughs> <laughs> so that's a kind of creative thing there that we're working on. But then, of course, bark is a, an important one because it has a large storage mm. or types of plants that live on the canopy so the epiphytes because if you have epiphytes that can store a lot of water that can increase the storage the angles of the branches um and then whether the uh leaves are say needle versus broadleaf in their morphologies there so the kind of similar traits that you would that you would typically see in some trait-based ecology work and you know, some of these were really looking for strong overlap between right. existing theory. Right. You know, <laughs> got to start somewhere, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, from the model side of things, this is what these variables inevitably go into. Is is how much of that is de novo? I mean, you said there there's fudge factors, so there's some variables being filled in over time. So that tells me models do exist, but. Obviously, the more you dive into this, the more your lab works on it and your colleagues work on it, the more maybe those models have to change. So how does that factor play out? Because that is about as foreign to me <laughs> as it can get in this world. <laughs> well, that that's a really I mean, that's a really a fun kind of uh, realm to jump into because mm. uh, I, so I come from basically an engineering background, okay. but like I am not a, a hardcore uh, numerical modeler. Sure. And so I tend to collaborate more with those folks. Nice. And um, I think they might say I am fluent in speaking about models. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Rather than developing and driving them and so on. But um, there are uh, multiple representations of all the processes in wet plants. Some of them are uh, a little more complex. Some have like, uh, but even the ones that are more complex, I'll give you an example. Uh, let's say we need to estimate evaporation from leaves versus the evaporation from bark, um, which because hydrologists tend to separate everything into buckets, which is kind of fun. Right. So they'll say the canopy is two buckets, <laughs> leaf buckets and branch buckets. Okay, sure. <laughs> Why <laughs> and so, not? <laughs> yeah, and it, it works, it works. It, it, they, get, they get good results in that. And so they have to have different evaporation rates and different flow rates to go in and out of these buckets. And um, they've done a lot of work, say, making cool formulae to look at aerodynamic conductance in leaves. Oh, wow. All types of leaf structures. You can find the conductance of water vapor. You can find this great stuff. However, branch, branches, bark, um, they don't have any. Uh, they don't really have much. And so what they do is they say, they take the leaf um, estimates and they just tweak them. <laughs> wow. Bark is so a tweaked see, leaf. There we heard it. Yeah. <laughs> or, or they pretend like bark doesn't really exist. Everything's just leaves, right? Or it's the uh, big leaf wow. camp. Okay. Big leaf models. So there is... 
so that that gives you a little bit more detail on like the modeling end all the way from just finding ways to make uh, key estimates of parameters for evaporation from say bark uh, all the way to say um, yeah yeah to, to, to looking at even parameterizations equations uh, to describe how these how these different buckets interact like hmm. these are yet to be um, fully described right. So it's kind of this iterative process of seeing how well this does. We refine it. Does it get closer to what we would expect from direct observation, which really comes down to like the importance of being out in the field during this inclement weather and probably not that long after it passes is direct observation is the only way you can correlate these two sorts of things. Like I watch a lot of motorsport and correlation between models and reality are really important in that. So that seems to be kind of what you're getting at here is with the direct observation side of things. Yes, e exactly. And in fact, we've seen some really cool, like uh, accidental discoveries in the field uh, in nice. terms of say ecological relevance, for example. So, so uh, koala behavioral researchers, just when it rained, they were like, well, we can't really see anything. Let's go. <laughs> and so they'd leave. And uh, it makes sense, right? Yeah. But then uh, the koala researchers that did stay out in the rain got rewarded with a novel observation of koalas basically giving the bark a licking. <laughs> and that was because they let the trunks turn into taps. Nice. They waited for the rain to drain all this water down to stem flow. And then they lapped it up. And before that time, it was generally believed koalas got all their hydration from their leaves. Amazing. From eucalyptus leaves. So just yeah. staying out in the rain uh, exposed a uh, novel process for koala hydration and informed their um, their attempts at conservation. I love that. That's so cool. What a great example, too. And, you know, the other side of it is this is also why I'm assuming you're shooting bark with lasers and trying to understand it because, you know, going back to the importance of stem flow and how much is going on there, if you're assuming they're all bark is equal and that they're all leaves, essentially... I'm guessing you're missing that because if there's one thing the epiphyte community people know is bark texture, bark chemistry, all these things matter. And so having a laser level scan of the detail lets you tease apart, okay, this is corkier, this absorbs more versus this is smooth, you get a nice flow. Like it almost becomes its own mini look at how a stream would flow, so to speak. Yes, yes. In fact, uh, I would say that stem flow has a great analog in stream flow nice because you know watersheds drain an area down to one point the discharge point and hydrologists take advantage of that uh somewhat cleverly they can sample that discharge point and they can say hey what's going on in this whole watershed right so mm. the same thing could be done with stem flow and the canopy we could say instead of uh getting all this expensive gear to climb up into the canopy or expensive gear to fly up and and survey the canopy from overhead with say drones which all also requires expensive and time consuming training and permitting and so on you could put a collar around a tree collect the drainage from that tree canopy and and make the same kind of inferences about the canopy shed as hydrologists make about watersheds from stream wow. flow. That is cool. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. And, <laughs> you know, is that like, are, are the lasers enough to, to start getting at that? Or are you starting to take like slides of, of cross sections of these things just because it's like bark has got to be so dynamic when you start thinking about it that way. 
Oh, you're exactly right. Uh, so the laser scans give us really great uh, surface textural information, and um, we can do some really fun things with that. For example, we can apply some existing measures from the ASTM measures for roughness from like the mechanical engineering world. Mm -hmm. They have roughness measures for surfaces to make sure that the surfaces they print are are in the right tolerances. You know, if you're a mechanical engineer and you print a surface and it's too rough, you're in trouble. Right. <laughs> or not rough enough. I don't know. Maybe yeah, yeah. They use it hey, <laughs> whichever direction you want to go with it, you might be in trouble. <laughs> right. So we, we're we doing that, which is seemingly uh, really, that has some valuable information. Uh, and then, uh, but actually looking at the bark anatomical elements, the, the kind of ecophysiology of the bark, Yes, we, we will uh, take some cross sections of the outer bark and inner bark anatomy, try and see if we can relate those anatomical features, their presence or abundance to, say, chemistry now. Mm. We can look at like one thing. Yeah, if you sample stem flow or through fall, the stuff that drips through the canopy, um, if you sample these, you'll see that they're really abundant in certain things like potassium. It's like tons oh, wow. of potassium come out of there. And sure, some's deposited from the atmosphere, but there's a lot that's just being leached out of the tree. Huh. And so you wonder, like, why is it so leaky? Yeah. Where is it leaking from? What anatomical features or ecophysiological process, right, is controlling that leaching of potassium, for example? Nice. And so we would look at the anatomy for that. That's cool. Which brings up a really good point in addition to just Yes, water is flowing, water is important to track, but water is carrying a lot of stuff with it too, which has massive ecosystem consequences as well. So talk a little bit more about that. Oh, yeah. Uh, so we, uh, uh, a couple of colleagues and I, someone from the, um, oh man, she's in Utah now. So Alexandra Panette-Gonzalez um, and a geomorphologist modeler, uh, nice. Travis Swanson. Uh, and, and a couple of others, we, we came up with this idea of hydrologic highways from the canopy to the ground. <laughs> I love it. <That's laughs> and cool. so um, basically uh, there are tons of stuff on there in, in, in these water flows because there's a lot on the tree canopy. Mm. And um, we call these particles, we call them like vehicles. If they're say abiotic or inert particles or something, well, inert is not the best word, but you get what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if they're biological, we call them passengers, nice. you know, so, <laughs> or hitchhikers sometimes. So, um, that is one of the least known things about what is in through fall and stem flow, about what is being washed out of trees. And when you look at this, you find an astonishing diversity of things, not, not just a diversity, but an abundance too. Mm. So we're seeing, I think the la the last estimate I saw was like, like a billion fungal spores, wow. the canidia, the um, asexual spores uh, hmm. being fluxed down from just stem flow alone in a year. You know, from a hectare of trees. <laughs> yeah, it's it's awesome. Uh, millions of uh, metazoans, small stuff like uh, tardigrades. Nice. And mites. Oh, man, what else? Oh, testate amoebae. I love saying that. They have those little shells, you <laughs> That's know? cool, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All types of stuff, man. So there is so much coming down from these trees. And then the question becomes like, what's their fate? now in the soils are they just being washed off and being eaten even so that's a lot of nutrients yeah right yeah are they replenishing kind of the diversity of the soil uh ecosystem i mean there's so many fun questions from that that angle 
and practically none of them have been explored. So <laughs> nice. Yeah. Fun frontier to be on. And yeah, when you start thinking, like I, we've been kind of hinting at throughout this entire conversation is small numbers add up. And when you really start looking at the complexity of a canopy, let alone the entire forest, you know, birds are pooping up there. So that's bringing nutrients. <laughs> the trees themselves are acting like sponges, picking out particulate matter. So yeah, I could imagine it is a wild world full of material, biologic and abiotic. And uh, again, so underestimated, so underappreciated for what's going on and, and just the importance to ecology alone, to things like nutrient cycling, let alone water cycling and, and soil formation. I mean, all of this has to come into big play here. Oh, definitely. And, um, you know, I have a few thoughts on that one here. Like, for example, um, when we look at like the carbon that's washed out of trees, the dissolved organic carbon, we call it tree dom because it's dissolved organic matter. Nice. And so tree dom, tree derived DOM. But when you look at this stuff, I mean, we're talking sometimes water flowing out of a tree. If it's been really dry, the, the rain that comes isn't like super intense. So like the tree never fully, uh, well, the tree accumulates a lot of dirt. It's a really dirty tree. It's now taking a shower. And that dissolved organic matter concentration can be mind boggling. Wow. Like in a river, you'll get, say, a few milligrams of carbon per liter coming in some, some stem flow on a tree that's been sitting there dry for, say, months on end. And then, bam, a storm hits it. You can get a couple of hundred milligrams of carbon per liter in that in that stem flow now, this is a maximum that's kind of one of the extremes but, sure. but still the even the averages are somewhere in the tens to uh and can be up to near 100 milligrams carbon uh in doc per liter i mean it's so much uh carbon coming out of a system and it, it raises questions about intrasystem nutrient cycling you mm. know um how well are our trees uh sucking that back up for example, yeah, right, or or microbes, they like it. Is it? Um, I think uh, one of my colleagues at Northeastern, Aaron Stubbins, he calls it tree tea. Nice. <laughs> mm. <laughs> it looks like tea. Yeah, I wouldn't drink it. Yeah, no, might be I a little drink it. funky, but you never know. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and you know, for me as an herb guy, thinking of just the distribution of herbaceous species that are living kind of on that edge of competition for nutrients and space, I mean, there's got to be a factor in there. It's got to be just beyond heat, the heat element of a darker trunk against the forest floor. Like uh, the interplay here has got to be pretty cool to think about. Yeah, and and there's so little work on herbaceous, what we'd call precip partitioning. So when I say wet plant lab. Uh, really, what I'm getting at is this broader term of precipitation partitioning by vegetation. Mm -hmm. So any kind of precip hitting a canopy, being partitioned, broken up into a couple of different fluxes, say either evaporation, we call that interception, and then through fawn stem flow, which we've already talked about. But uh, this precip partitioning of herbs, there is very little there. And yet what exists is pretty fascinating um, there's like a ragweed study where it showed that like, what do we call ragweed and herb? Is that, does that get down yeah, to yeah, like, that, that's, that's okay. fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <It counts. laughs> I'm fine with that. So, uh, <laughs> but they, they found that like the, the, they, that these plants can generate like, uh, additional water from condensation from dew overnight. And they can probably, uh, generate enough to supplement their water needs Nice through co condensing water and draining it to their stems as stem flow. My favorite one is I had a student who wanted to work on uh, marsh grasses and then COVID hit. 
And so everything shut down. And, and she was emailing me and I'm like, well, what do you have around like your house or wherever you are, nice. you know, in like yeah. the urban setting. And she's like, I've got this like uh, wildflower. And it was that uh, Tradescantia ohiensis. Oh, nice. Spiderwort. Yeah. It's a pretty flower. Yeah. It's an awesome so, plant. Yeah. And, and it's just these urban lots down in Savannah, Georgia are just covered in them. Like it's just as dense as you can imagine. It's cool. just Tradescantia from miles, right? Yeah. Well, not miles, but hundreds of feet down a lot. More and than so, more than you'd expect. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. And so uh, she put little stem flow collars on them to see what their partitioning was and whatever. And I said, well, you know, just test and see how uh, how effective your stem flow collar is. Give me an error, like how much you just apply with those little squeeze bottles. Mm-hmm. You know, a little bit of a little bit of water onto the flower, and tell me how much you recover in the stem flow collector. And she's like, I'm losing like half the stem flow. Oh wow! And it turns out, it turns out all the little overlapping uh, leaves—they yeah. were stealing each other's stem flow. <laughs> we called it Grand Theft Hydro. Amazing! <laughs> <laughs> uh, incredible. <laughs> yeah, that, that is one cool. Was fun. Yeah, I mean, so much of what you do is so like scale up, and it is big. Like the impact is huge, and probably still being wildly underestimated. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. That's cool. I'm having a lot of fun looking into these things. And uh, I mean, even like soil uh, erosion, like we had mentioned, uh, yeah. we were talking about a little bit earlier, you know, orchards are now worried about, well, I've been worried a little bit now about stem flow when you get too much uh, carrying away the soils. Right. So because uh, there's a macadamia orchard in Australia where mm. they were losing their soils because uh, stem flow from macadamia trees. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine, you know, instead of millions of tiny droplets hitting the soil, having that flow uh, over the course of the base of, you know, what you're really concentrating on makes a huge difference in soil retention capability, especially if you're managing a system so heavily to not have a lot of competition underneath there, hoping to either slow it or hold on to it. Yeah. And and if you think about it, like with the, um, there is this wild thing that happens with erosion when you have like a, like a surface flow and let's say a plant has created stem flow and it's flowing along the surface. And so that wants to pull up particles if it can, but then also you've got these drip tips on these leaves, right? So mm. leaves want to get the water off. So they have these little drip tip things. And so you get these through fall droplets that can be pretty huge. So they fall and these giant droplets hit this flowing water and they smash and water doesn't like to join together. So it wants to stay its own little independent thing, right? So this droplet is like a battering ram on this thin flow and it creates little jets that oh, just wow. tear up the soil underneath. So when you have a stem flow, you know, say if it's, if it's flowing along the surface in a, say, an agricultural setting or something, and you have like a drip, like a huge drip tipping leaf thing, boom! you could have a, a, a kind of a synergistic effect on erosion. Wow. And even that, like the physics of it at that scale is so interesting to even have that component in your head because I, I hadn't considered that until you just spelled it out that way. So interesting. <laughs> cool. So what happens then when you have things that would potentially change the way stem flow happens, like a rotting limb that's acting more like a sponge because the heartwood is now being consumed or just a hollow space in general. Like how does that start to factor in when you, you know, even from just a simple, Hey, that's neat when it happens, we don't fully understand it yet kind of way. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I mean the, the, the kind of 
uh, standing deadwood as like an ecological in, important kind of phenomena has been around for a while, but it hasn't been integrated into this kind of field of ecohydrology. Mm. So there are some kind of fun, unanswered questions. But in general, hydrology has kind of dominated this field in a way. So there's a real hydrology perspective. So everything's a water balance, ah. you know? So like what's fun about it is let's say stem flow decreases because now the tree's dead. Well, now that uh, if that bark and that dead wood gets all spongy, well, now the trees maybe not so much an interest in terms of stem flow. Maybe now the tree's an interest in terms of its absorption, storage, evaporation, right? It's removal of water from the surface and the return of that water back to the atmosphere. Wow. Um, and it might, it depends, of course, on the kind of conductivity between that dead stuff and the air and, and a lot of other factors. But the, uh, the idea is that maybe it switches from being a uh, really concentrated supply of water right at the base of its stem, you know, like mm. possibly even blasting soil particles right. away yeah. or, or, you know, or bringing tea to a microbial tea shop. <laughs> it's transferred in that to being like a, a loss, you know, like uh, the stem, stem flow on dead trees can be like nothing. Yeah. It can be, you know, I mean, so negligible that when you measure it, it's like 0. 0.0001% <laughs> of, of rain. So uh, whatever that stem flow was, it's definitely not getting to the ground anymore. Dang. Whew, yeah. I, and, you know, talking about biases, I, I have to imagine and correct me if this is way off base, but like it must be a challenge some days, some years, I would assume, when you're really facing something different, you want to approach something different, but either, you know, the field has focused too heavily where there are no examples that are different enough to accept it, or it is so wildly unconsidered because of how weird and unmeasurable it has been historically that <laughs> you don't have a choice but to get hyper creative. And, I, you know, where do you land on that? Is some days easier than others when you're trying to face these challenges? Or is it just kind of exciting no matter what time period or mood you're in? <laughs> no, no, you're, you're right. Uh, it has been a rather uh, kind of challenging I, I, well i'll just start by saying when I, when I started looking at this stuff in the rain and and uh really trying to integrate these observations into broader theory i was like everyone's gonna have their mind blown because my mind was blown <laughs> yeah. and you know i was biased i guess <laughs> fair enough and uh but then um but then it was in i ran up against an odd thing uh because it's been so hard to measure because there are a lot of other uh, processes that tend to attract more attention, say streams, right? Say groundwater, uh, especially in hydrology. Um, it, generally, people would go, ah, you know, this is a small part of uh, of the water budget. But then uh, it, it ended up having this effect where I was like, well, actually, I don't think it is a small part. I think it's a small part because we've neglected it. <laughs> and I think it's a, it appears small because we've had a lot of assumptions that are maybe rooted in the perception that it's small. Right. Right. <laughs> right. So yeah. in the end, we show like, and I'm not the only one to have started that. There are some other, uh, even very famous hydrologists, a guy from uh, Technical University Delft, uh, Hoop Savanai, in like 2004, when I was just getting into academia, you know, mm. he had a paper where it was like, it's time to think about interception more seriously because <laughs> so the evaporation of, tr of water, from rainwater from trees. And he shows all of these uh, meaningful estimates of how interception can uh, affect uh, the water budget. Because if we ignore it or we simplify it too much, well, it's the first interaction 
between precipitation and the surface. Hmm. You know, I'm going to draw the line at the boundary layer. In other Fair words, enough. that spot between the, yeah, between vegetation and, and the atmosphere. Yeah. And so if you screw up the estimate of how much actually makes it to the surface, that error is going to propagate through everything. Hmm. But if you haven't thought about what that error is, right? Right. You can always, uh, and then there's, there's a kind of a thing in models where you can kind of hide errors in different things, you know, like things <laughs> people don't care about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's that guy's fault. Not mine. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So yeah, it has been a, a challenge over time. And, uh, but it's been really fascinating to see that, um, that people have embraced the ideas and have at least said, wow, you know, you've shown me enough that there seems to be a, enough reason Enough uh, reason to look at this. Um, yeah. yeah, some things in some places may be small. Some things in other places may be big. But it, now it's the time where we need to start collecting this information and testing whether or not these uh, stay, even some of these hypotheses that we um, that we might reject or confirm in some places. Well, w where does this hold and where doesn't it hold? Under what circumstances? Yeah. So uh, people have really started jumping into that now, and I'm really excited by that. That's a great perspective to bring to the table because I think it's easy to fall into the world of we're always making new discoveries and, and pushing the needle. But sometimes science, a lot of times, actually, science, especially science on the cutting edge is, hey, it's just I've shown you just enough to show we got to start looking at that more. <laughs> it's not necessarily going to blow the, the lid off of the entire world of ecohydrology, but it's enough to say, hey, maybe that variable is something we need to start measuring. And maybe there's a bunch of people out there that need to know how to mathematically model it. And then there's a bunch of people that have to invent the next technology or reapply a technology to it. So this is a good plug for as many different ways as I can say it is everyone can have a stake in the natural world. You could be a mathematician, you could be an engineer, an electronic engineer. Like there's a way to get involved in this sort of stuff. And I think work like yours really beautifully illustrates that. Oh, thank you. Yes. And I completely agree with you. I think that there's, uh, when I, when I talk to students, sometimes students will come to me and they'll say, I know nothing about what you studied. And I'm like that, that doesn't matter. What, what do you know about? What are you excited about? What are you interested in? What's your enthusiasm? And uh, they'll say something along the lines of like wildflowers. And I'll go, all right, trade a scanty Ohiensis. Let's go, <laughs> you know? Or, yeah. <laughs> or I had one, one student told me uh, that he was really interested in dog fennel and like uh, pasture cool. weeds. And I'm like, we can do something with that. Yeah. Sure. Or uh, I just had a recent uh, person who was, who was doing... Um, basically informatics and data analysis for um, subscription services. And he's nice. like, man, you know, <laughs> I, I help the logistics figure out how to get stuff to people all the time. And, you know, I think he was working for like a, a, a dog company, you know, huh. had like sent out dog subscription. And he goes, man, I've turned even dogs into consumers. <laughs> he's like, I think I want to do something environmental. <laughs> like, he's like, but I don't know anything about, uh, but I know anything about environmental science. I spend a lot of time in it and whatever. I was like, uh, your, your data, uh, data analysis skills, yeah. you know, there's bioinformatics. Like we can get into some of this, like really, uh, uh, really computational biological stuff. And so uh, actually he's helping me to uncover the kind of where does stem flow come from? Huh. In the tree canopy question that we talked Dang. about earlier, because that requires a pretty hefty uh, computational biological perspective. Yeah. Yeah. We're really at an interesting time and you can look at it cynically and there's many reasons you can and should probably look at it cynically. But 
as connected as we are, as brilliant as we become, and as specialized as some people are in those worlds, who knows how you can apply this sort of stuff? Like network theory, who knew that would be so greatly useful to the world of biology, you know, and then extrapolate from there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is like graph theory too, you know, they're related, you know? And so this is like using like uh, network X, you know, and like Python or something. Yeah. And, and, and so it is going to be a really interesting time. And especially with the advent of AI, I mean, uh, I, I, I totally get why people are a little bit freaked out by it, Sure. but, uh, but man, I I think that the, uh, if if we can just harness it the right way, then we can, we can really use it to, to, um, to draw stronger inferences into nature, to build a better relationship with it. Um, And, you know, that, that's going to, I guess we almost uh, bridge on into bioethics at that point. Yeah. And it's so <laughs> funny you bring that up. I'm going to digress here. I apologize to my listeners, but I I found a streaming channel for nothing but unsolved mysteries. And they had a whole crazy episode on genetic technology and cloning. And all of these arguments are being repeated time and time again. It's like that. This has all happened before. It will all happen again. And it's the same thing. It's like, it's a tool. Just like a hammer is a tool. You can hurt someone with it or you can build a house for someone. It's all in how you wield it. And that's where I'm, you know, that's what you were getting at there. But that's exactly yeah. it. just as amazing how poignant that was. And that was early 90s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there were a lot of like really interesting thing in the early 90s regarding AI and, and uh, you know, the, the kind of adjustment to new technologies. Yeah. I think, you know, like do robots dream of uh, electric sheep right, or right, something. Yeah. You know? <laughs> These authors were so before their time, but poignant discussions and conversations being had these days so yeah (laughs) sorry for the digression everyone that just was too funny to me (laughs) going back to something you said earlier uh you're in Ohio you missed the snow and that to me is amazing because I've just been trying to get away from that for a while now but (laughs) how much does the type of precipitation matter in your work I would assume that you know there's a temporal component to hey now it's frozen and it sits around for a longer period of time and melts slower like does that start to factor in? Does that complicate all of these models? (laughs) Yes, you're exactly right about that. In fact, um, depending on the type of precipitation, that will greatly influence not only like the time that it persists. For example, you can have snowpack sitting in canopies for days on end, but you can also have uh, the different amount of water that sticks up there. So uh, rain, so because it's going to flow down and all, it's going to maybe be, I mean, the maximum storage capacities we see of of kind of big trees with epiphytes is several millimeters. So, you know, it'll it'll absorb a a relatively modest storm. But the uh, snow interception, that can be rather impressively large. Um, So one thing about the snow community is they have their own lingo, of course, right? So like, (laughs) if you're talking to them, yeah, yeah, if you're talking to them about like, oh, how much water did that plant hold, you know, up in the canopy, that's snow. They're going to tell you, they're going to tell you something in SWE, snow water equivalent. It's like the equivalent. Yeah. Okay. Um, Cool. um, Yeah. yeah, And and, and so we're learning some new terminology. Yeah. (laughs) And so uh, this SWE, so you can get like, 40 millimeters of snow water equivalent. That's like the equivalent of storing an entire, a a large storm. A 40 millimeter storm is a pretty decent storm. And in snow, because it's of its structure, right? It can just sit up there and and cling on. And um, it's even tough to melt. But my favorite is ice. 
Because like ice yeah. storms, we know so little about it. The only paper we have of an ice estimate is somebody like literally took a stick and like beat a tree until all the ice <laughs> oh, came down on a tarp. Oh boy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Whatever works, I guess. <laughs> Amazing. But but the models assume that it doesn't melt unless it's above freezing in the air temperature. Yeah. Which is interesting because you have internal heat in the tree. You also have bark, which can absorb radiation. And so there's all of these energy sources that even when we're close to zero, you may get some decent melt. And that's one of my favorite, one of my favorite videos I found was on Imgur. It was of a birch tree, I believe, which was coated in ice. It's very cold. And the ice was melting from the inside. And you could watch all these beautiful patterns yeah. of water just draining down the inside of this like sheath of ice. That's cool. Epic. I love it. <laughs> Which brings up another really good point. It's just the the quality of time you're spending in the outdoors, observing and being inspired, asking new questions, being introduced to ideas like the koala you didn't even know were out there, right? And so, you know, you're out oftentimes, you and your lab, your co colleagues in time periods when no one else is really willing to be out there and spending time observing. So I'm sure just the the mesmerizing aspect of nature at a different time period, what so few people get to appreciate has got to be a pretty spectacular reason in and of itself to do the work you're doing. Yes, that's that's absolutely true. Uh, some of the views that we get, um, you know, I'm not saying like views over mountaintops. It's not like very far distant sure. views because, you know, our vision is obscured. <laughs> <laughs> but the views we get can be pretty, uh, pretty fascinating and pretty rewarding. Uh, even if it's a, even if it's a puddle, you know, like, mm. uh, sometimes you can walk through the woods and you can see a shimmering puddle that has just, uh, the shim. it looks like a sheet of oil, but it's not, if you touch it, it'll be like tiny little iron oxy oxidized, uh, minerals oh, yeah, on the surface yeah. because of the iron oxidizers that are operating in that little spot. Cool. And so you can like touch the little, uh, the little, uh, surface thing and watch it flicker and break apart. And uh, I guess I never grew up is like, <laughs> <laughs> perfect. I'm just still poking at puddles. And then people have to tell me that I'm supposed, Hey, John, you're supposed to be uh, helping us collect data right now. Why are you poking that puddle? <laughs> uh, yeah. A mark of a great scientist. I think most of the people I talk to have never grown up and that's, that's my kind of people. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yes. I will say, you know, stem flow has a different meaning for me uh, than in, you know, I love sitting on my porch and watching it flow down the hackberry bark because hackberry bark already looks like miniature valleys anyway. And so I yes. know a good rain when it finally is is flowing down the stem and pretending to be a vertical valley. So to me, it's just a chance to sit back and, and enjoy like knowing my plants are w being watered by nature and I don't have to go do that later. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Well, you know, some of those uh, some of those trees are giving little allelo chemicals into that into that stem flow too. Like, uh, ah, yes. you know, you can get yeah. I'm a, I love that Atlantis altissima tree of heaven invasive. Yeah. You know, like that seems to have uh, ilanthone, and it can it can like it appears that it can push it out in its stem flow. And so, mm. you know, the question is like, is it is, is stem flow kind of uh, uh, a, a conveyance? of chemical warfare. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You may be sitting back enjoying the enjoying the show, but it's really a war. Yeah. <laughs> it's, nature's Active, wild, like, man. War against other species. <laughs> it is. And and yeah, I, I love this idea. Like I get in so 
I get so much crap from people when I put anything other than calm, acoustic music to nature, which if you like that, that's fine. But to me, nature is thrash metal. It's aggressive. It's <laughs> drone. You know what I mean? Like there's so many more elements to nature than just the, ha, ah, yes, peacefulness. But I get peace out of that too. It's it's interesting to think about. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there, there was this uh, weird, you know, every, every NSF project we submit, we have to come up with a broader impacts and I like to try and push the boundaries there. Sure. And uh, uh, one of the first grants I got, I was like, we're going to make videos called Plant Brutality. <laughs> and, and there was all these videos about like the brutality that plants could do. And it was, you know, had like a metal song in the beginning. Nice. We had a little acorn called Acorn Nelius. Who has like his like little helmet, yeah, you know, like a like a military helmet. Uh, when he landed awesome. in the ground, he would break up and tear up all the other trees. Yeah, it was <laughs> it was wild. And you know, I think I think that I, when I shared that with the NSF program officer, they must have been like, "What in the world? Who is this person?" <laughs> but I'm listening, and that's the other part is like you're getting a whole different audience when you start hitting that. It's a lot of audience that aren't already traditionally there in the first place, but. You know, thinking of the nuances of biology, because that's what all of us are governed by, um, you know, the species component. I remember, and I do not, I've never really found or spent the time, I should say, tracking down if this is true. But everything you've just described lends credence to this idea that someone told me that where I come from in upstate New York, sugar maples were so uh, coveted that they were left in all the other forests trees were were usually felled and there's an unnatural abundance of sugar maple in some areas which has completely changed the hydrology of the landscape because of the way they interact with water in the environment both at the canopy level on the stem flow but i'm sure underground as well but it's not so far-fetched to think that's possible based on everything you just outlined here and i'm sure the biological component i know you stick with traits but that just throws so many different interesting twists to this story and will continue for the rest of your career and hopefully many other careers to come. Oh, yes. No, exactly. And we have a lot of sugar maples around here as well. We, we have some plots over at um, uh, Holden Arboretum. Nice. In, uh, yeah, in eastern Ohio, northeastern Ohio. And so uh, I'm definitely going to be... We're, we actually are putting some flow collars on some sugar maples coming up soon. Cool. Uh, once all the snow melts. Nice. We'll be doing that. Nice. But yeah, I'm really excited to get into some of the uh, some of the biological questions, especially we're, we're starting to look at um, the microbiome and uh, starting to look at maybe some of the functional genes that will give us some information about, say, nitrogen Ooh. in particular. So Excellent. we've got some uh, some fun stuff, even the microbiome, getting nice. into some uh, some fungi. Dangerous world, a slippery slope, as they say, but uh... yeah. You'll have to keep us posted. This is amazing. And so with that in mind, if people want to find out more about your current and future work, where do you recommend they go looking to find out more? Yeah, you can uh, go to uh, Twitter or X or whatever it is now. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you can go to Twitter and you can go to uh, at Prof Van Stan. I put little underscores in between the Prof, the Van, cool. and the Stan. Uh, that's where I normally put up uh, whatever papers I've got going on. And then I have a YouTube channel that I paste. I put some uh, papers on as well because um, I had some time as an audiobook narrator. So sometimes nice. I'm just like, man, this paper has a good flow. I'm just going to read it aloud into a microphone <laughs> and put some music behind it. That's so, different. That's a different approach. Kudos. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. And then I have a research gate as well. And uh, on the research gate, we have science comics uh, that cool. have been supported. So the plant brutality thing is kind of a thing of the past now. So we work with uh, comic artists to 
tell some of the stories from our from our projects. Excellent. I love these novel approaches to just getting it out there. But uh, I will spare everyone the trouble of trying to remember all of that by putting all the links into the show notes for this episode. But Dr. Van Stan, thank you so much for spending the time with us, for the the, the just joy you bring to the subject matter, the passion. It's infectious. I appreciate it. Uh, But yeah, thanks so much for telling us about it tonight. We really appreciate it. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Matt. It's great chatting with you. Of course. Well, in the meantime, stay warm and hang in there, but keep it up. (laughs) Will do. Cheers. See ya. All right. That was fascinating. Who knew? I didn't. It just goes to show you how intense the scientific world can get. And I mean intense in a good way. There's so many cool questions they're trying to answer and so many more over the horizon. And if you want to keep your finger on the pulse of all of this, just head on over to the show notes at indefensiveplants.com where I put all the additional links so you can learn more. As always, I thank Dr. Van Stan for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us, and I hope you'll go check out more of his work. And if you enjoy episodes like this and you want to make sure there will be more into the future, consider supporting Indefensive Plants today. There are a lot of great ways to do that. For instance, you can pick up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch, and stickers. You can also become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. I literally could not be doing this podcast without support, so thank you to everyone that's kicked in thus far. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.